Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Good morning, Kit. Hey, good morning, everyone. Hope that you are having a very, very blessed Saturday. You can catch the Bridge Builder program here each Saturday on Relevant Radio AM 1330 at 11 a.m. But if you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes, just visit us at mncatholic.org slash podcast or use your favorite podcast app such as SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play to view our podcast list. Each week on The Bridge Builder, we bring you great interviews on some of the major issues impacting how we live our faith in the public arena. We answer your questions through our mailbag segment. You can always email those to us at show at mncatholic.org or connect with us on social media. And it wouldn't be the Bridge Builder program if we didn't provide you with practical ways that you can build bridges in public life. In today's news cycle, we often hear about the term nationalism and the nation state and talk a lot about that. We hear slogans such as Make America Great Again. It's left many Catholics wondering whether Catholicism and nationalism are opposed or if there's some way they can be reconciled. One way of thinking about this is that nationalism seeks to to focus the idea of the common good within the context of the nation state. Can one be Catholic and be a nationalist? Can one be Catholic and have a true sense of patriotism? With us today to help unpack some of these questions is Dr. William Cavanaugh. He's coming to us from Chicago, where he's professor of Catholic studies at DePaul University. Some of our listeners from Minnesota may recognize Dr. Cavanaugh from his 15 years teaching at the University of St. Thomas. He is the director of the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology at DePaul University and is author of some very fine books, among them Theopolitical Imagination, Torture, and Eucharist and Migrations of the Holy. Two of those I've read, and I can tell you they are absolutely fantastic and thought-provoking books. Dr. Cavanaugh, welcome to the Bridge Builder Program. Oh, thanks, Jason. It's good to be here. For most of the 20th century, it seems the, the sense in the public of the locus of community, one might say, in the, at least in the United States, was the nation. That unity has certainly fractured uh, economically, politically, and culturally. But it seems that many who wish to, there are many out there who wish to recover or preserve our national identity in some way or some sense of us as a nation, and we, people are calling it the new nationalism. What are Catholics to make of this phenomenon? Well, I suppose we need to ask, first of all, whether the main locus of our uh, emphasis on community ought to be the nation to begin with, or if it's uh, some kind of higher loyalty. And I would argue, of course, that uh, for Catholics, our our primary loyalty ought to be to God first, um, and the locus of community ought to be uh, a kind of wider community than, than the nation. So uh, the body of Christ is an international uh, body, and you know we see that in uh, symbolized in all sorts of ways, including the fact that our Pope is usually uh, someone from you know from far-flung regions of the world, and so on. And so um, I, I think, in one one sense, we need to ask ourselves first of all, as Catholics, what what is our primary? Where is our primary loyalty? Um, and then um, uh, begin talking about secondary loyalties and consider uh, loyalty to the nation as, as among our, our secondary loyalties and not our primary loyalty. 
In some of your writings, you describe how our allegiances have shifted from the idea of the church or the body of Christ to the nation state, which uh, undoubtedly that's true. We see more people, it seems even Catholics, you know, focusing their sense of identity and community on being Americans first in many instances and less uh, as members of the body of Christ. How is that possible and how did that come about in your view? Well, um, a lot of historians have done a lot of work on this, and it seems that um, a very general shift from medieval to modern, part of what what kind of um, characterizes the shift from medieval to modern is the shift from uh, the ideal of Christendom, at least in the European context, this ideal that is kind of transnational, that we are all part of the same uh, body of Christ and that our loyalties transcend locality, a shift from that sort of view to a view of um, the primacy of the nation. So people uh, begin thinking of themselves as French and English uh, and so on um, as the the modern period uh, begins to unfold and the the nation-state begins to kind of crystallize those sorts of loyalties. So um, martyrdom becomes, uh, instead of dying for God, martyrdom becomes dying for the, the nation. Uh, and I think sometimes we forget uh, about how, um, how recent uh, a development that is. You know, there's no such thing as Italy until 1860. There's no such thing as Germany until about the, the same time. And um, these sort of national identities are something that um, are recent and, in, and not entirely uh, salutary um, in, in this kind of transition from, uh, from Christendom to, uh, to the modern world. It seems that one can and should love one's home and one's own corner of the vineyard uh, at the same time while not deifying it or ignoring the plight of others. Is there a distinction between patriotism and nationalism, and do the principles of subsidiarity and solidarity come into play here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, The distinction between patriotism and nationalism uh, is one that um, I think can be useful, although sometimes it's uh, it's exaggerated. So basically, you know, what you do is nationalism, and what I do is patriotism. It's just a way of uh, patriotism. is can oftentimes just be a word uh, that sanctions uh, that that sounds less harsh than nationalism. But I think there is a there is certainly um, a virtue involved to um, loving the people that with you know with whom God has placed us and so um, I when I lived in Minnesota I was a diehard Minnesota patriot you know I loved the Twin Cities and I loved uh, Minnesota and those kind of loyalties branch out in kind of ever-increasing circles like that um, but the idea of subsidiarity, I think, is a really helpful one here as well, that um, that you make loyalties to people with whom you have direct contact and have direct kind of relationships. And the, the, the kind of more local, the more direct, more face-to-face those loyalties are, um, the better. In some ways, the, the nation-state is a kind of large abstraction from the local, and, um, and in some ways that, that can be a, a kind of dangerous uh, har- harnessing of 
natural local sort of identities into a much larger um, and much more dangerous project because the nation state has uh, an army and uh, and local loyalties don't. How much do you see of the new nationalism or some of the populist movements as legitimate reactions to the disenfranchisement and failures, one might say, of the creative destruction of liberal society as opposed to a coherent political agenda? Well, I think that's right. I mean, yeah, I think we need to understand um, what's going on sympathetically, because it's not just that people have decided that they want to circle the wagons and and say, me first or us first. Um, there certainly are uh, elements of globalism that um, have disenfranchised people. And this, you know, you mentioned creative destruction. That's a term that has been used for capitalism. And um, it, it creates, while it destroys uh, more local forms of community, and the the whole movement towards globalization over the last few decades has certainly disenfranchised people. People have lost their jobs, um, you know, decent-paying jobs in the United States because the factories have moved to Mexico and Honduras and China where they can pay wages at, you know, less than a, a dollar an hour. And those um, that kind of exploitation of the mobility of capital is something that um, has had a profound negative effect on people. And so there is a certain sense in which um, we need to be wary of that kind of exploitation. And so, you know, when I'm in a store, I'll look for things that are made in the USA, not because I think that people in the United States are more important than people in China or Honduras or something like that, but um, out of a sense that um, if you buy something that's made in the USA, there's a better chance that people are being paid a decent wage and not being uh, exploited. And so um, I, I think there are certain grievances that are driving this process towards nationalization that are uh, understandable and, and need to be addressed. Um, but how we address them is um, is key. So it seems that the the order of loves, one might say, in the sense of our families, our local communities, um, there's a legitimacy to that, having a sense of uh, love and devotion to those with whom we live and work on a daily basis. But it might be the case that a, a useful corrective to a type of patriotism or nationalism might be our global sense of solidarity as, as members of the body of Christ. How do we begin again or see anew our mem- ourselves as members of that body and then see others as potential members of that body of Christ, in your opinion? Um, well, there used to be a, um, a saying, let Christians agree uh, first not to kill one another. And um, there's this something very arresting. I mean, obviously, there, there's much more that needs to be said about that, and uh, there's a sense in which we don't want to kill anybody, not just refrain from killing Christians, but it's a sort of reminder um, of what's at stake when uh, our loyalty to God and to Christ uh, takes a uh, uh, secondary place to other kinds of loyalties, where um, the unthinkable that you could actually kill another member of the body of Christ uh, becomes entirely thinkable and entirely rational 
uh, once it's put into this national sort of framework. And so um, thinking of the million uh, Christians in Iraq uh, was, I I think, a sort of helpful reminder that um, uh, God's concerns don't stop at our borders, but that uh, God is concerned for all people, and not just Christians, but this is a way... Uh, thinking about it in terms of other Christians as a way of kind of expanding our um, our moral imagination to think that uh, God's concern is for everyone, that everyone uh, is a member or a potential member, as Dorothy Day used to say, of the body of Christ, and that helps us to see people in uh, in other ways, to see them not as enemies, but as brothers and sisters, and when you begin to have that kind of imagination, then it changes the way you think about borders. You know, I remember as a kid looking at the, um, I was six years old when the astronauts landed on the moon, and I remember looking at those pictures of Earth from outer space and wondering, where are the lines? Because when we had a, a globe when I was growing up, and all of the countries were different colors, and they all had lines around them. And then to see the Earth from outer space, where, where there were no such lines, uh, was a kind of exercise for me at an early age of this kind of moral imagination of seeing the world as God sees it, where these lines uh, between countries are entirely artificial, and um, and God is concerned for for all of God's children. Just drilling down on that point a little bit deeper in this image of the body of Christ, how might uh, our participation in the Eucharist give us a better sense of our connectedness to others and uh, our and not make an idol out of the nation-state, one might say? Yeah, um, the Eucharist is we eat the body of Christ and then we are eaten by the body of Christ, uh, as Augustine put it. We're kind of uh, pulled into this larger life, uh, the, the 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 body of God in some sense, um, in which we're uh, we're meant to uh, think of of the others in um, in these very kind of um, corporal terms. Paul, the way Paul puts it in First Corinthians twelve, you know that when one suffers, all suffer together, and when one rejoices, all rejoice together. And so we come to have this uh, um, kind of share the same nervous system, as it were, in the body of Christ. And so the sufferings of others become our own sufferings, and we can no longer, you know, look at the people coming across the border from Central America and say, well, that's, that's not my problem. Um, they just need to, to go home. You know, Paul says, the, the hand cannot say to the foot, I have no need of you. And um, and that I think kind of opens up our um, our imagination to, uh, to kind of a participation in God's imagination. Where do you see Dr. Kavanaugh, the Church, being an effective voice in the public arena or in political life today? Um, I think there's a real challenge that some people face or some people see in the sense that this idea of being the voice of public reason or having a philosophy of public reason and engaging the public square uh, through the natural law has been uh, somewhat of a failure and somewhat of a challenge. And where do you see the Church being able to regain its prophetic voice in public life today? Yeah, part of the problem uh, is that um, Catholics think of natural law as being universal, and 
everybody else seems to think of natural law as being Catholic. And so speaking in the language of natural laws um, has not always been very effective. I mean, the, part of the problem, of course, is that um, the, one of the main ways that the Catholic Church speaks to the public is through the bishops, and the bishops have... Uh, their credibility has been compromised by the by the sex abuse scandal, and so um, it's hard to say what exactly is going to be effective. Um, if you look at what seems to move people and what is effective, are the kind of gestures that Pope Francis uh, has been putting forward. Um, the way he kind of reaches out to the vulnerable, the way he goes to where the, the migrants are are being held in Italy and reaches out to them. The kind of gestures, uh, the, the mass that was, that, the masses that have been done at the southern border uh, of the United States where you've got um, kind of sharing communion through the fence, um, those I think are really powerful uh, gestures and when backed up by actual action, you know, of Catholics kind of um, aiding aiding people in need, aiding migrants, and so on. That seems to me to be um, the, the most effective witness. We can send lobbyists to Washington, but um, the most effective witness are, is the, the kind of action of, of the Church, both clergy and laity, in, um, in addressing the, the afflictions of the world. Dr. Kavanaugh, that's all the time we have for today, but thanks so much for helping us unpack some really difficult issues. My pleasure, Jason. Thanks for having me on. Dr. Bill Kavanaugh is the director of the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology at DePaul University, an expert on uh, the Church and the Eucharist and political theology. We'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect the Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Atkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now we're going to delve into our mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending to our producer, Kit Cross. Kit, what have you got for us today in the mailbag? So in this week's mailbag, we're looking at some of the questions that are surrounding proposed legislation here in Minnesota to legalize the recreational use of marijuana. So, Jason, can you just bring us up to speed on what's happening with this issue here in Minnesota and why the bishops have taken a stance in opposition to it? Here in Minnesota, like in many states uh, around the country, there's a significant push to legalize recreational marijuana. And that issue presents a significant challenge. Uh, People understand, well, it seems like another harmless activity that uh, doesn't bother anyone else. So if you don't like marijuana, then don't use it. Um, But I think there's a profound concern for the impact that marijuana has, not only on the well-being and dignity of human persons, but also on the common good as well. And we can start with the common good. all sorts of factors play into this. The the pension, the the way in which recreational marijuana or increased marijuana use is being more and more linked to increases in mental illness, uh, very difficult and challenging effects on mental health. Uh, we can look at a state like Colorado, for example, where recreational marijuana has been legalized. You have a 48% increase in traffic deaths, for example. Uh, Over half of the people that um, are uh, in treatment for substance abuse um, have 
issues with uh, marijuana dependence and marijuana abuse as well. It's a gateway drug in many instances as well. Increases in crime around places where marijuana uh, is sold in places where it's legal already. So some significant and detrimental effects on the common good. Uh, everyone knows about work productivity issues. Anyone who smokes marijuana on a regular basis will tell you that their productivity uh, has declined. So a significant challenge um, altogether. Now it's bound up, of course, in the way in which the United States has also fought the war on drugs. And so there's questions about whether or not we have to criminalize uh, marijuana usage in every instance. And so although there's opposition in the part of the church, not only here, uh, but in other states as well, Pope Francis has even come out uh, in a number of instances as being opposed to marijuana. The bishops of Massachusetts, the bishops of Illinois, uh, most recently in Illinois, uh, come out strongly, have come out strongly against the legalization of recreational marijuana. But um, but there's also a, a question, like I said, about uh, decriminalization. Do we have to be putting in jail people in jail for having small amounts of marijuana possession or um, having some sort of addiction or a substance abuse related to marijuana? And the question is, um, can we instead impose fines rather than putting people in jail? And can we uh, also put people and direct people toward treatment options? And in some ways, that might be the better option. So we're certainly open to conversations about decriminalization. Already, Minnesota has decriminalized very small uh, p uh, cases of possession, possession of trace amounts of marijuana. Um, the question is, though, should we go to bigger um, amounts of possession? And there's some reasonable uh, discourse and discussion around those sorts of possibilities. But the idea of legalizing it is kind of a recreational drug. Um, the strong opposition to that on the part of the church, not only here, but uh, around the nation and indeed uh, from Pope Francis as well. So that's an issue that's going to come up in Minnesota again. It was already uh, before the legislature in 2019. There's going to be a big push again for it in 2020. Our hope is that legislators continue in many instances to be opposed to that and uh, may have hopefully the Minnesota Senate uh, is a real roadblock against legalization here in Minnesota. So before we go today, we always like to provide our listeners with sort of a practical way that they can start to get involved on any given issue, how they can start to live out their call to faithful citizenship. So listeners here this week, we want to provide you with a practical tip to start bridging the gap between faith and politics. Jason, what do we have this week? Well, as we like to say, politics is often made by those who show up, or public policy, rather, is made by those who show up. And that means coming to legislative hearings and expressing your opposition, even though typically uh, most hearings uh, require you to to sign up in advance if you want to testify. Oftentimes, the committee chair will ask if there's anyone from the audience who wants to give testimony. But one way of giving testimony, even if you don't speak, is by showing up and voicing your opposition. And you can't bring signs into legislative hearings typically for because of rules of decorum, but you can wear T-shirts and things like that. And, and interestingly, even though our legislature is in recess, right, or it's adjourned for the year and won't start up again until February, they still have hearings, uh, informational hearings. No action can be taken uh, during the interim, but at the same time, there can be informational hearings and things are certainly going on. People are reading about all the hearings regarding uh uh, the uh, fraud and uh, the organizational mismanagement of the Department of Human Services, for example, is one big thing going on right now. But unfortunately, amidst all that, the Health and Human Services Policy Committee in the House will be holding an informational hearing on the legalization of assisted suicide. And that's something we've talked about on this show uh, in the past. Really a difficult, challenging 
an unfortunate conversation to be happening in the state with the best health care um, in the world. We should be promoting better care, uh, not undermining better care by sending people home uh, with a vial of pills to end their life. So our view is that we should be promoting better care and real compassionate care and not promoting assisted suicide. There's going to be a hearing on the bill, House File 2152, on September 11th at 1 o'clock in room 200 of the state office building. It's not exactly clear how much testimony will be allowed, but one thing that people can do is show up and show up in great numbers. Uh, wearing red, we always recommend people wear red to the assisted suicide hearings. Uh, red means stop, right? Stop assisted suicide. Let's be promoting better care instead. We'll have an action alert up on our website uh, where people can also take action. But if you haven't attended a legislative hearing, uh, this is a really a great opportunity to do so. Um, even those who don't speak can speak with their apparel, so to speak, and let people know that, um, let our legislators know that this is the wrong turn uh, for Minnesota. So come to a legislative hearing, a great way again to learn about how the hearing process works, to see how lawmakers deliberate, difficult issues, and then at the same time to make your voice heard and your opposition heard to the legalization of assisted suicide as well. We are part of an alliance at the Minnesota Catholic Conference called the uh, Minnesota Alliance for Ethical Healthcare. That um, website is ethicalcaremn.org. Again, that's ethicalcaremn.org. Our social media handles are the same as well, but it's a great resource uh, for the very large, over 50 organization alliance that's been developed to combat assisted suicide, people from across the faith and ideological perspective spectrum coming together to oppose assisted suicide and promote better care here in Minnesota. And that's really the cornerstone of our message is that we should be working on developing better care, whether that's palliative and hospice care, giving people more education about uh, legitimate end-of-life options. Uh, you do have uh, lots of uh, choices and autonomy at the end of life, and that can be exercised through a healthcare agent. You don't need to be hooked up to tubes. You don't need to embrace every extraordinary measure. Um, but the way in which you navigate that is through well-formed principle on uh, our Catholic faith and having a good healthcare agent to make decisions for you if you come become incapacitated. And that is another resource I should mention is our Catholic end-of-life care guides and our guide to healthcare directives, which are available at our website, mncatholic.org. Again, that's mncatholic.org. Again, giving people practical, useful information and tools and materials to help make quality end-of-life decisions and have those conversations with their family members as well. Perhaps some of you have aging family members, want to make sure that process goes smoother and the uh, Minnesota Catholic Conference Guide to Healthcare Directives and Guide to End-of-Life Decision-Makings making can be great resources in that regard. So I just, again, point people to that legislative hearing September 11th, 1 p.m., room 200 of the state office building, uh, but also check out our Catholic end-of-life care guides at mncatholic.org and then the Minnesota Alliance for Ethical Health Care that can be found at ethicalcaremn.org. So, Jason, we have just another minute, and we've previously talked about assisted suicide and Oftentimes we hear the argument about it being about someone's autonomy. Now, maybe you could give our listeners a couple tips or talking points on this issue as to, you know, why is it that the church is so opposed to assisted suicide? It's not just a secular argument, but, you know, oftentimes that's the argument that has to work with people who maybe aren't of faith and don't have that same understanding of the ultimate respect for 
human dignity. Yeah, there's an argument from faith and reason, right? And the, the argument from reason is the one that we generally make in the public square because people don't necessarily share our faith or the premises of our faith. And so we have to point to uh, reasonable arguments that other people can embrace as to why that this is not uh, a good public policy. And from the question of autonomy, you know, so if, if you don't like it, well, don't kill yourself, right? Um, the question is really about institutionalizing and medicalizing uh, assisted suicide. Of course, people can end their life pretty easily. So why do we need to make it a public policy? Why do we need to coerce doctors into making it part of the ordinary standard of care? What's going on there? And I think the the issue is is that protecting the quote healthcare autonomy of some is going to be endangering the autonomy of other people. Um, when care is expensive and killing is cheap. Which one do we think is going to win at the end of the day? And uh, we under, all understand the abuses and and uh, profit motive that go on increasingly in the healthcare industry. Uh, we saw that with the opioid crisis. Why do we think it would be any different um, uh, when an insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies, and doctors all get together? Why do we think that it's necessarily going to be the case that the abuse and fraud and uh, uh, unethical behavior that goes on in the opioid context wouldn't go on in the assisted suicide context as well. So protecting the autonomy of some might endanger the autonomy of the rest of us and limit our healthcare choices. So uh, that's the, the biggest argument against the autonomy is it's actually going to hurt the autonomy of everybody else. That's all the time we have for today, but don't forget that you can help others bring the Catholic faith into the public arena by becoming a sponsor of the Bridge Builder Show. It's a great opportunity for businesses and organizations to advertise and let people know that you support bringing Catholic faith into public life. You can email our producer, Kit, at show at mncatholic.org for more information about sponsorship opportunities. Don't forget our mailbag segment at show at mncatholic.org and catch up on our past episodes of Bridge Builder at mncatholic.org slash podcast or your favorite app. Thanks again for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Cross of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, have a great weekend.